Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 118. The old George is dead. Long live the George. The fantastic string of victories that occurred across 1759 in North America was capped in 1760 with the capture of Montreal. The British had conquered Canada. The Seven Years' War was not over, but the British had taken a huge step in the right direction. They had all the momentum. Pitt was delighted when word reached him in October 1760, but he was hardly surprised. Amherst updated him of the situation in North America, specifically about trouble with the Cherokees. They could now take the next step for further conquest, either moving against the French islands in the West Indies, or further west against the French in the Mississippi Valley. Things were looking less positive in Europe. In 1759, you'll recall Frederick had been hanging on in the east. British reinforcements to the Hanoverian army were occupying the French, leaving Frederick free to deal with the Austrians and Russians. They had inflicted a heavy defeat at Kernersdorf, but had failed to cooperate after that. The Russians loitered around Berlin, and the Austrians moved to Saxony to capture Dresden. 1760 was a bit of a repeat year. The French wanted to join the fight against Prussia, but Prince Ferdinand of Brunswick continued to hold them back. He wasn't able to take the offensive against the French, but he could stop them advancing. The British felt strong enough to send further reinforcements, and by September, over 20,000 redcoats were on the continent. Meanwhile, Frederick and the Austrians dueled over Silesia. Frederick won a brilliant victory at Langnitz against a vastly larger opposing force. The Russians loomed, but they continued to suffer severe supply problems. The Russians briefly managed to occupy Berlin in October 1760, but were forced to withdraw when Frederick arrived in the area. It wasn't a victory, but it was good enough. Europe was the weakest theatre for the Anglo-Prussian alliance, and they'd managed to hold their ground there while making big steps in North America. Pitt's plan, hold on in Europe while he tore apart the French colonial empire, appeared to be going well. Canada had been captured, and the French appeared to be collapsing in India. It's been quite a while since we've looked at India, but British and French had been feuding India for most of the 18th century. When word arrived in India that there would be a declaration of war, it was seen as an opportunity to restart the conflict between the East India Company and the Compagnie des Indies. In March 1757, the British moved against the French base of Chandernagore before moving against the Nawab of Bengal and defeating him at the Battle of Plassey in June. Everything had gone well in northern India, but things were quite difficult in the south, where the Compagnie de Indie had more of an influence. 
In early 1758, a French force commanded by the Comte de Lallée arrived at Pondicherry, where he established a strong base. He threatened the British position on the Coromandel coast, which is the name for the eastern coast of India. He took Fort St. David in June before moving against the British power centre in the southeast, Fort St. George at Madras, and placing it under siege before the end of the year. It was a bold move, particularly since most of the British troops in India were in the far northeast, in Bengal. But the British reinforced their position in February 1759, forcing Lally to return to Pondicherry. As the war progressed, the British made almost exactly the same play as they did in North America. They used their greatest weapon, the Royal Navy. Before long, the British controlled the Indian Ocean, which gave them a strong advantage. Lally's soldiers lacked pay and supplies, and found their position deteriorating across 1759. The British finally drew Lally out in January 1760, and the two fights fought at Wandiwash, about 40 miles to the northwest of Pondicherry. It was a decisive defeat for the French, who were forced back to Pondicherry and saw their positions in India restricted to its immediate hinterland. It was placed under siege in August and finally surrendered in January 1761. Four months after the capture of Montreal, the French had been defeated in India. Now, to state the blindingly obvious, India is a very long way away from Britain. It took months and months for news to travel around the world in the 18th century, so it wasn't until October 1760 that Pitt heard of the Battle of Wandiwash and, and the build-up to the siege of Pondicherry. Though Pitt would have been convinced that the fall of India was imminent. Pitt became slightly obsessed with the idea of seaborne expeditions and conceived an idea for besieging Belle-Ile-en-Mer, an island which dominated the approach to Quiberon Bay just off the coast of Brittany. Having a base there would, in Pitt's mind, divert thousands of French troops to coastal protection and away from Germany. The scheme was certainly bold, but it was opposed by Brisson's two greatest admirals, Lord Anson and Sir Edward Hawke. Pitt took his idea to the king on October the 24th, who, to his shock and horror, opposed the idea. King George was principally concerned about the possibility of British troops needing to be taken from the Continental Army to support the measure, leaving Hanover exposed. Pitt, full of confidence from the run of events since Louisbourg, where he had masterminded the capture of Canada with the fall of India imminent, set about planning a campaign of persuasion on King George. For the events of the next day, I'm going to turn to the court gossip, Horace Walpole. Quote, the king rose at six, as usual, looked, I suppose, to see if all his money was in his purse, and called for his chocolate. A little after seven, 
he went into the water closet. The German valet de chambre heard a noise louder than the royal wind, listened, heard something like a groan, ran in, and found the hero of Udenard and Denningen on the floor with a gash in his right temple by falling against the corner of a bureau. He tried to speak, could not, and expired. End quote. An autopsy later concluded that King George had suffered a heart attack caused by um, his exertions on the toilet. That uh, certainly didn't take me ten takes to be able to say without laughing. In a moment, everything had changed. For a long time, there had been an estrangement in the royal family. King George II had a notoriously bad relationship with his son, Frederick. While Frederick had died in 1751, making his young son, George, heir to the throne, the wound did not heal. The king had his own faction, and then there was a group around George III and his mother, known as the Lesser House faction. I've referred to them on and off again throughout the series. Pitt had once been the darling of the Leicester House faction, but he had since distanced himself from them to build his working relationship with George II. Pitt regarded himself as the indispensable man, but he was now massively vulnerable. With this, it's time to bring a new figure to the stage. John Stuart, best known by his title, Lord Bute. Born in 1713 in Edinburgh, John Stuart became the third Earl of Bute upon the death of his father in 1723. He attended Eton College before going to university in the Netherlands. He graduated with a degree of civil law in 1734. He eloped with Mary Wortley Montagu and made his first foray into politics by being an elected lord. Now, in a radical departure from recent events, Bute was not a Whig. The Whigs have dominated British politics since the ascension of the Hanoverians in 1714. Walpole, Henry Pelham, Newcastle, Devonshire, Fox and Pitt have all been Whigs, but Bute was a Tory. Out of power since the reign of Queen Anne, perhaps for this reason, his early political career was not long. Having been elected in 1737, he was voted out of office in 1741 and returned to managing his estate. He moved to London in the mid-1740s and formed a close relationship with the Prince of Wales and his wife, Princess Augusta. When Frederick died, he was made tutor to the young George. He was exceptionally close with the Princess Augusta and there were rumours that they were, in fact, lovers. But this is likely just hearsay. George picked up many of Bute's opinions, such as the belief that people and issues had absolute rights and wrongs. This would, in time, lead George to unfaltering loyalty to people and ideas he believed were good. With the death of King George II, Bute suddenly became the principal advisor to King George III, although any hopes he had of immediately being elevated to power were dashed. Newcastle and Pitt were still in charge, for the moment, and Bute would make it his immediate goal 
to remove them both from office. This marks a convenient point to end today's episode. We've set the stage for the power battle between Butte, Newcastle and Pitt in London, although in our next episode I want to return back to North America to deal with an issue I've been vaguely talking about for a number of episodes. The Cherokee in the South. Thanks for listening, I'll see you next time. (laughs) 